Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, November 8th, 2018, the Brazil elected a literal fascist edition. I'm Adam Quinn, senior lecturer in international politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham, and a guy with a broken arm. Uh, thanks to listeners who've expressed some sympathy uh, about that, it continues to heal, and we continue to provide you our usual standard of analysis and, and chatter notwithstanding. Um, as the title tips you off, uh, today we're talking about the election of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. And to help us do that with maximum expertise, we have a three-person dream team of colleagues assembled. Uh, two of them you've already met before if you're a regular listener. Marco Vieira, who's an expert in the security of rising powers in the developing world, and himself a Brazilian. Hello, Marco. Welcome Hello. back. Hello. Very pleased to be here. Excellent. Uh, and Daniele Albertazzi, who knows all about populist political parties in Europe, especially in his native Italy. Welcome back, Daniele. Thank you for inviting me again. And new today, the newbie, uh, Richard Shorten, who's one of our political theory colleagues who writes particularly about the rhetoric of reactionary politicians and how it succeeds. Uh, welcome to us for the first time, Richard. Good to see you. Hello, and thanks for having me. Excellent. Thanks to everybody for being here, and thanks to you listeners for being here to listen to what we have to say. Today's topic, on 28th of October, Jair Bolsonaro was elected president of Brazil, defeating his left-wing opponent, Fernando Haddad, in a second-round runoff with 55% of the vote. Some foreign press coverage has referred to Bolsonaro as a right-wing populist, uh, but that seems a bit euphemistic to describe his politics. Uh, during decades as a vocal fringe figure in public life, uh, he frequently expressed admiration for the brutal military dictatorship that governed Brazil from 1964 to 1985, which he personally served as a street-level captain. He's also called for an end to democracy, said he would rather his son be dead than gay, uh, told a female political critic he wouldn't rape her because she didn't deserve it, told black activists that they should go back to the zoo, and many other horrors. These are all very offensive statements, of course, so I repeat them here only so there's no ambiguity about the kind of person uh, that we're talking about. This certainly is not just banter, uh, in the words of some in the press in recent times. In the run-up to this election, Bolsonaro attacked his opponents sweepingly as communists and his supporters engaged in significant levels of harassment and intimidation. Uh, with Bolsonaro in the presidency and his previously tiny party now possessed of many seats in the legislature and some important regional governorships, many fear Brazilian democracy may be in mortal danger. They also fear that if he lives up his, to his pledge to radically loosen firearms control and lessen police oversight, uh, a wave of state-approved vigilante violence may be coming soon. Um, so that's the, the stage set, and a very bleak and worrying stage it is too. Uh, Marco, we're going we're gonna to start with you. Um, and this is most personal for you, I guess, because you, you yourself are, are from Brazil, although you haven't lived there um, for a while. Um, let's talk some background first. Jair Bolsonaro is not a new figure in Brazilian politics. He's actually been around a very long time. Um, but he's not someone who, until relatively recently, people would have taken at all seriously as a prospective candidate for the highest level of, of political office. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience uh, and uh, memories of him throughout the full length of his political career, and, and also tell us how did things suddenly kick up uh, a gear in, in, mm -hmm. in terms of his political trajectory so that we now find ourselves at this uh, very troubling and unexpected place. Okay. Jair Bolsonaro, I... First time I've heard his uh, name, I was around 15 years old. He's from a home state, Rio de Janeiro. 
And even though you're right, he has always been a fringe uh, politician, but he has always been elected with quite a lot of votes. So he has always the most elected or the, 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 the MP with most votes in my, my home state. So she has always had a base of people, conservative, morally conservative, who uh, believe in, 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 in being tough on crime. And, and so he had this you know, base that has always been there. You have described well uh, uh, his views, his really outrageous views on, on minorities, on how to, to fight crime, and, and he never managed to break the ceiling of, I don't know, enough people to put him in the lower house, but not you know, enough people to elect him president. That's what happened now. So for me, the shocking aspect of him being elected is how come a country where you have around 100 million people who can vote, 55% of these people voted for him in the, in the runoff, which is in the, the region of over 50 million votes he got. Is that the case that Brazil now, you have 50 million people that agree with him that you know, minorities should be treated in a very outrageous way, that uh, uh, women are inferior to men, or all these horrible views he has expressed you know, often, and everyone knows who he is, he's really open about those views. Or oh, there's something else going on there, and I think there's something else going on there, and this is the lesson that uh, we all could learn from the Brazilian experience, is that despite of those views, even people who find those views repugnant, they still voted for him. It's not only white, privileged people from the southern states, from affluent areas, you're talking about people who insults himself voted for him. No minorities, LGBT community, people living in the, in the, uh, in the, 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 the favelas, in the, in the shanty towns. You, know, you don't get 50-something million votes only from his uh, uh, already uh, established constituency. So there's a, a bigger question here. And, and this is what I think is common to other examples in other, in other countries, in, in, in the United States as well. But uh, the lesson here, I think, is rather than blame these people who voted for him, even though there are a big chunk of voters who actually share his views, maybe 20% of them, but most of them don't, right? And then think about what, what went wrong in Brazil. And I think what went wrong is precisely the fact that mainstream uh, politicians, established parties, didn't provide the people with the answers they needed. You know? and, and people were, and the two issues that actually were, the main issues on his campaign was, one, crime. Brazil is a country where more people die in a yearly, yearly basis than in Syria. Since last year, I think 64,000 people were killed uh, uh, in the country. People don't feel safe to go out. No? And he offered something. He said, we're going to go hard on these people. We're going to kill them, basically. And he used a language that people could understand. No? And most people could understand. And the second point is the economic crisis. And here he used something that he's very good at, which is to blame the Labour Party. So that's the point I made on, on the, the talk the other day, that Brazil has this particularity, which is the hatred in a, in a, in a, in a quite uh, uh, large sector of the population of the Labour Party for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that they are associated with policies that will take away the privileges of uh, the middle classes and and, and, and they feel uncomfortable with the, the, the gains that 
the working uh, working class people made over the years that they were in power. There is association that he made also with uh, the communists that at some point they will become something like Cuba or Venezuela. And, and this is also a very important aspect of uh, uh, how he, he got a... a he got elected. Economically, the country is doing really badly. Crime is a, a massive issue. And finally, corruption, right? He, uh, even though the cases of his, himself and his family involved in, in corruption scandals, not as big as the one that have been uh, unveiled by the car wash operation, this massive, like the one in Italy in the 90s, the, 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 the clean hands that uh, you know, the judiciary went hard on, on the politicians, and 60% of the lower house was somehow implicated on, on the, the, the findings of the car wash operation, which fundamentally undermined mm. the way politics is done in Brazil. Which we have discussed on a previous episode exactly. of this podcast. Uh, exactly. And what people said, votes said, this is a completely uh, a corrupted system. This, this is uh, disgusting, basically. In a daily basis, there was a scandal in the newspapers for at least a couple of years, both left and, and right. But mainly associated with the left was in power for 13 years. And they said the left is corrupted, the right is also involved, we need something different. And the guy said, it's me, mm. basically. I mean, he, the echoes for some of our listeners will, will be there without any prompting uh, of Donald Trump, the most high-profile example of someone who resembles some of the attributes that you were talking about, this idea you know, he, he says and does outrageous things, uh, but even if people don't agree with all of those things, the prospect of putting him into play as a kind of belligerent counterpoint to establish political forces of all sides, people are gratified by that and think it's necessary on some level. See, that kind of attracts support in spite of some of his views as much as because of them. But the, the Trump analogy is a little a little flattering to him in some ways, or at least takes the edges off of him, because you know, regular listeners will know that I carry no brief for Donald Trump. Uh, I think he's the absolute worst in, in a variety of ways. But he's just a sexist, racist, uh, corrupt businessman, whereas this guy has a, a very different profile as an active servant of a military dictatorship uh, with, with all the views about law and order and politics that one would expect to, to come from that. Now, I said in the title, um, slightly facetiously, but not really, uh, that Brazil may have elected a literal fascist uh, here. Uh, I, I think the phrase right-wing populist is a little euphemistic. But Rich, uh, you know a lot about fascists uh, and the whole panoply of right-of-center political views in and around and alongside that. Easy for me to go throwing this word around. How, would you, how, how do you see the use of the word fascist to characterize people like this? Yeah, it's, it's a serious question that's been asked. Is uh, Bolsonaro a fascist um, in the recent week and so in the media? It needs to be handled carefully, I think. There's a genuine dilemma here about political criticism. If you rule the analogy with fascism out of court, then it's nonchalant and not giving it the seriousness it demands. On the other hand, there's something hyperbolic about reaching for that category of fascism a little bit too right. readily. It's, it's like banging the big red button of labels because, you know, the historical associations of fascism obviously mean that you don't call someone that unless, unless you really want to say this person is not just my opponent but should be excluded from office at all costs. That's right. I mean, in a broad sense, I think at the moment what we're seeing in politics is reactionaries coming to the fore and I would use reactionaries to cover all sorts of political figures on the hard right in the large sort of space beyond conservatism. If you start to look at that close up, 
then I think you pick that in pick that apart a little into subcategories. So at one end you might have populism and the other classical fascism, which I would associate with the interwar period, the sort of representative figures being Hitler or Mussolini. I think the problem with a category like populism in the case of Bolsonaro is it seems a little bit weak to do it justice. Equally, uh, in the Latin American context, the word like populism has left-wing credentials, arguably, that seem to be lacking in Bolsonaro's case. If at the other extreme you reach for fascism, therefore, I think that's excessive because there are at least three crucial features of classical interwar fascism, and only one of those seems to hold to me. The first feature of interwar fascism would be an idea of the total state or some ambition to transcend bourgeois individualism, some notion of the inclusive community. That seems to be absent to me, certainly in the strong sense of a total state. The second feature of classical fascism will be an idea of rejuvenation or some utopian component to it. And again, I don't see much evidence of that. The third uh, historical feature of fascism would be strong nationalism, which does appear to me to be present. But in light of sort of classical fascism not being a perfect analogy, what I'll be tempted to reach for instead would be something like Francoist Spain. So if you think about Franco Spain, then the values represented there are at least threefold again. Militarism, Catholicism, and anti-communism. And I think you see echoes of each of those values in Bolsonaro. So place of militarism, you've got Bolsonaro's record as a military man, you've got the pro-gun positions. Uh, in place of Franco's Catholicism, you've got the general tough-on-crime position. And then in lieu of anti-communism, you've got this strong critique of the left and this uh, willingness to, to play up the corruption of the left as something endemic mm. to it. So for those sort of reasons, I think a sort of position where he's not quite a fascist, but Hmm. Sort of replicates an historical right. category. So, so there's like the, 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 the question for the histo- historian's salon around this would be like, was Franco a fascist? Yeah. Was Spain fascist in this period? Because if they were, then so are these transplanted South American variants on Francoism. And if not, then they're not, I guess. We might wonder, like, what are the real world stakes of throwing this word around in that, you know, People, we work at a university campus, for heaven's sake. We know that people have been throwing the word fascist um, at whoever they disagree with, uh, you know, for as long as there's been uh, a concept of, of fascism. It, it can be invoked pretty, pretty lightly, but it's ticked up in terms of its usage in, in recent years, along, along with this right-wing populist wave. Does it really, does it matter if people misapply the word fascism, bring it into much more ready, free and easy use in political discourse. Um, One way of looking at it would be that it uh, it highlights the severity of the potential political threat posed by this phenomenon, whatever it may be. So if one thinks that this is a a baleful political force that could produce a downward spiral into authoritarianism. Maybe it's all to the good to make people more worried about it, which the word accomplishes. On the other hand, if if people are being hysterical and using it where it's not warranted, maybe that just neuters its efficacy as a label and uh, people who believe anything on the whole right 
spectrum of the political uh, conversation can begin to hand wave mm -hmm. at, at, at really extreme uh, policies because because it's become cheapened as a, as a criticism. What do we think of that, um, Marco? Yeah, I think there's an interesting element of how fascism has been used uh, in the Brazilian context and elsewhere as well. Is where it's less important to define what the fascist is or how fascism has been used to delegitimize the other, to delegitimize de the narrative of someone who is labeled a fascist, which is a more like a Foucauldian way to use it. So in terms of, uh, by using fascism, you are acting to take away the power of your op opponent, mm. right? And, and I think that the, to throw away fascism everywhere is pretty much, you know, uh, there's one important element of that. In the Brazilian context, what, the, the, the use of the word fascism, had, and you are perfectly right in, in what you said, that Franco seems to be a, a better example, a better comparison than either Hitler or Mussolini, uh, because those three elements are indeed there. But one element that has been used in the left side of debate to call him a fascist is the use of hate against minorities, or the attempt to use violence to silence ev ev everyone or anything that says things that he disagrees with or he goes against his political agenda. So he's basically now, now stating that either we are with us or against us. Uh, there's a slogan that has been used during the dictatorship in Brazil that he's now reinstating that Brazil, either you love it or you leave it. So which basically mm -hmm. either you love it the way I want to build this country or you're just going to be kicked out of it. In that sense, he has been called a fascist because of this particular type of language has been used as a way to unify people behind his political agenda. And at this point on the total state, it's a very interesting one because I agree that he's maybe that's ideally what he wants to do. But the problem for him is that Brazil is not a fascist state, not as yet, right? There's a lot of pushback if he attempts to do something like that. But his ideology is somehow an attempt to build this idea of Brazil as a, as a total state with a strong nationalist ideology, where what he said in the past that uh, the minority has to bend to the majority, and the majority's country for him is the white, male, middle-class, affluent elites of the southern states. Uh, you can pick up on, on some of this, mm. totalita not totalitarian, but at least attempts to unify the country along the lines of this Which, which is always a little bit of a danger with labels in the sense that, I mean, there, there are always two things ongoing simultaneously. There's, there's where someone and some country is at any given moment of snapshot, and then there's the question of trajectory, that most people who end up being uh, hegemonic authoritarian dictators don't become that completely overnight in one day. They uh, set their sights on a series of objectives that they ultimately arrive at having having multiple times pushed up to and slightly past the line of what's acceptable in any given context, but moving that line all the time in, in, into the distance. And you know, Someone like President Erdogan in Turkey would be a, a, an often pointed to contemporary example of this, who was very heavily constrained by a whole range of domestic institutions and norms at first, and who has steadily moved the frontier such that his political position is very, very strong right now. Um, Daniele, I want to bring you in here because we've, um, we've, I suppose, put this in intellectual context to some degree with Rich's. Uh, clarification of how the word fascism gets thought about. But let's put this in international context as well. This is 
an event in Brazil that was immediately placed by most commentators into a wider narrative of something at large going on in the world, where in multiple countries we have something that looks an awful lot like uh, right-wing authoritarianism coming into play as a, as a, as a serious prospect uh, for government in a way that it has not for a long time. Uh, and there are a series of commonalities, many have said, between the kinds of political appeals and the kinds of political objectives and the sorts of parties and messages that are, that are accomplishing all this you know, in Europe, in North America, in Latin America, etc. How do you see the validity of those of those unified right-wing nationalist wave kind of narratives? Is this one big thing, or is this a whole load of little things that people are trying a little too hard to, to blur together? Well, regardless of how we call uh, these movements, because, uh, of course, there, there is also a discussion to be had about how useful it is to call them populist or to call some of them populist or indeed right-wing populists. But regardless of our choice of definitions, it seems to me that in general as you look around certainly uh, post-industrial societies there, there, there seems to be some uh, commonalities. Now to what extent this now uh, travel to Brazil, uh, I'm aware that there are some features that are kind of characteristic to that election, but there are also some commonalities more generally in terms of uh, Number one, the great detachment of people from traditional political parties, which is, tends to be made worse by issues such as, of course, huge corruption scandals. And here you, you have an obvious kind of comparison with what has just happened in Brazil. Because, uh, um, of course, the, the moment in which Berlusconi uh, becomes the, the, the key political actor in Italy and brings neo-fascists into government in the mid-90s, and I say neo-fascist because these were people who defined themselves as fascists in the mid-90s. It's a period that follows a huge, huge scandal that brought down all the mainstream parties in Italy. And, uh, of course, there is a lot of focus in the rhetoric, for instance, of uh, Le Pen, both father and, and, and daughter, on the extent to which the French political class is uh, corrupted and the extent to which they are all the same, they are assumed to be all the same. So it seems to me that you know, the first element that is interesting is uh, thinking about the extent to which mainstream parties no longer represent people or, or how they, they are framed also in the media as being in crisis and being unable to uh, respond to the needs of people. This is linked also to a, another issue, which is uh, the extent to which uh, processes of globalization are impacting on, on people's lives. Uh, it's linked to the previous one because nation states are increasingly, of course, part of networks and, and, and of course, there is uh, only so much the national governments can do to address people's needs, even if they want to address these needs. So uh, what happens is that mainstream parties very often portray themselves as being responsible. Uh, so basically, uh, the, the, their discourse is full of, oh, yes, we would like to do that, but we can't because we've signed an international agreement, we are part of the EU, and so on and so forth. So you have now very often new leaders and new parties that come uh, onto the stage saying, actually, I want to be responsive. And this is a terminology of Peter Mayer, responsible versus responsive, meaning, actually, 
I don't care about the international agreements. I don't care about mm. our membership of the EU. There are some fundamental issues that need to be addressed, and I'm the one who's going to address them. And very often, these parties are led by people who can portray themselves as outsiders. So the, the, the discourse is, well, actually, I can address these issues because I'm not the traditional politicians, and I don't feel bound to these values of like having to stick to these rules of to these treaties. Mm. And third issue, which of course is very important and is declined in different ways around the world, but I think it's very important, is the extent to which for a number of reasons that we can discuss, increasing number of people feel threatened by increasing diversity uh, in, in some countries in Europe, not every country, the growth of Islam, or perhaps it's not the growth of Islam like in Eastern Europe, but the thought that Islam might one day grow, right? Because you have countries in which, like uh, Poland or Hungary, in which uh, you know, there is a lot of talk of Islam when there are hardly any Muslims. Right. They're uh, like the international version of these counties yeah. in like, the deep south of the United States mm -hmm. that pass an anti-Sharia mm -hmm. uh, anti law uh, ordinance, despite the fact that you know, <laughs> they would be the last place in the entire United States, even were it to fall to political Islam, that you would have enough people to actually support Sharia law. Mm -hmm. It's where these things are least actually happening that you sometimes have the most extreme, paranoid, political, neuralgic responses to them. Because of what they mean. So, in, for instance, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, but also Fidesz in, in Hungary are arguing that there isn't only one model of democracy, the kind of liberal democracy uh, that we, we've known so far, but there is a much more conservative idea of democracy whereby, uh, you know, it's perfectly fine for, for a democracy to try and, and, and protect its own identity as a Christian in this case, in this case, like Christian uh, um, community. And, uh, the, the, you know, it's not written anywhere that we should treat, for instance, all religions the same when the argument is uh, all religions are not the same, for instance, in terms of how they view certain values or, or individual freedoms, and so on and so forth. So all of these things, although they are declined differently around the world, I, I think in many societies seem to have emerged as much more relevant. Mm. Rich? Yeah, I'd like to go back, if I may, to uh, the point Daniel made about the uh, prominence of corruption amongst recent right-wing sort of themes. Corruption seems to me to be one of the ways in which a classic reactionary trope of conspiracy has been wheeled out. So one of the ways in which I think it's helpful to think of reactionaries exercising a rhetorical appeal is by trying to invest trust in particular characters as a classic way in which you say there's a conspiracy going on, only I know about it, therefore trust me. And corruption seems to be something that's prominently alleged in the right-wing sort of scene, and therefore this is something which gives another an historical mm. perspective on things, because conspiracy is something that reactionaries throughout mm -hmm. the modern period have yeah. alleged. Mm. And that's, what, that's why I find interesting that on the issue of corruption is where Bolsonaro might find it the most difficult for him to play the democratic game in Brazil, because the Brazilian democracy does not work, the type of Brazilian democracy does not work without corruption. Corruption is how it has been fundamentally built as, as a, a way to allocate you know, funding to political parties, as a way to finance political campaigns, as a way to have access 
uh, uh, to power and right, like what would have been called the spoils system in, say, nineteenth century United States. That if you win elections, you get yeah. a bunch of public and, and resources. And this uh, is precisely the question for him now, because either he will play the game, or he will have to take really drastic measures, which is mm. to follow through what he said he would do. You know, which is basically to shut down the Congress, you know, centralize power on himself, mm. and have a direct link with the people. Uh, and but he has already shown signs that he's going to play the game, mm. okay? Because to pass some of his key uh, uh, policies, he will have to negotiate with people who, are, who either have been reelected to the lower house or to the senate, or have to build new forms of alliances that will depend fundamentally on those types of relationships. Mm. He said, "I'm not going to give away. I'm going to engage in this type. I will change the way the, the game is played." Mm. But there are signs that he will just try to do things the way that they had they have been done in the I past. mean this is one of the things that that slightly I mean baffled over states it but like grinds my gears about the the, the, the populism slash corruption nexus which is you know there has been corruption so long as there has been like government in the, if, if by corruption we mean steering of resources using your political power for your own benefit like there was corruption in the 1950s 1960s 1970s 80s 90s whatever to the extent that we perceive that there is um, like a great deal of corruption around us now, like so enough to cause multiple scandals that erode public trust in, in those in power and lead to some kind of electoral backlash, that is because those kinds of activities that are often that, that have been going on consistently throughout history are revealed in some way, either through the investigative power of countervailing institutions or an investigative press, a free press, having the ability to look into these things and reveal uh, things that, are, that have been going on in secret. And therefore, one of the lessons that you might think you would learn if you were outraged about the level of corruption in your society is that it's enormously important to have multiple centers of power uh, balanced against one another and to have a free press with the ability to investigate what people are doing. And yet the leaders that are being empowered by the section of the public that professes to be most outraged about the fact that corruption is everywhere are people who have, um, as two of their sig signal priorities, the desire to shut down all press that is not slavishly devoted to themselves and to maximally concentrate power in their own hands by uh, delegitimizing political opposition, you know, which you don't need to be a deep reader of history to know that if you shut down the free press and concentrate all power in yourself, that corruption is going to be rife, and much more so even than in the, the, the system that you're trying to displace. And, you know, we, we see this. Donald Trump is in many ways a cartoon a version of the hypocrisies and idiocies of this kind of thing. But the fact that within only two years of being in office, uh, he has demonstrated himself to be galactically corrupt and to have appointed some of the most... Uh, brazenly uh, corrupt and incompetent people in the history of the American government is a kind of illustration of this huge gulf between the rhetoric of getting elected by saying everyone else is a thief and a liar, elect me to clean it up, and then uh, the reality that you want to uh, not empower but shut down all of the institutions and systems that would be best equipped to do it. Mm -hmm. How do we square this circle that... Um, People who get elected based on outrage about corruption with a mandate to fix it uh, actually, in reality, favor things that totally run counter to that. I think it's a, a traditional uh, 
structure agency question because I mean if it, if as someone who wants to change something and then you are structurally embedded on it, it's really hard to uh, uh, really do something about it without just bringing the whole house down. So and this is the question for him because he has already been enticed to play the game if he wants to do something about the policies that he said he would he will uh, try to pass one is the uh, the main one that has been banging on this one for for the whole campaign the the educational reform what he calls school without ideology without uh, left-wing ideology no right word, because yeah. the word ideology yeah. of course never means whatever you yourself believe in the word ideology yeah. always means what uh, what people that you don't like yeah. on the other side yeah. think to get you just believe in facts and education they mm -hmm. believe in ideology and yeah. indoctrination even though he can play with the three main caucuses within the Congress that they call the bullet, the beef, and the Bible, uh, which has some coherence within them because they are within those three main issues. But he has to play the game of, okay, if you want to vote to pass this law, you need to give us something back, which is the, how the, the game has been played for a long time in Brazil. If he says no, there is there a, a, a deadlock, right? Uh, uh, how is going to deal with those deadlocks that will happen quite often? This is the question here. So one interesting difference between the Brazil and United States in terms of uh, uh, corruption is that, which, which is very particular to the Brazilian cases, how, uh, uh, and one of the reasons why he was associated with uh, a clean, as a, uh, as a clean politician, is that because he's a military man. And in Brazil, there's this perception that uh, the military, the armed forces, are kind of purified institution who is based on good values, discipline, and hence they are isolated from the corrupt, uh, dirty world of politics, mm -hmm. which is a complete misunderstanding about the military mm -hmm. and the military period when they were in power. The reason why there were not that many corruption scandals back then was for the reasons you just mentioned, because there was no free press, there was nobody investigating. Right, if you're going to yeah. kill anyone who, yeah. who writes a yeah. story about your corruption, then yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if your coverage yeah. is, is excellent. Yeah. But, but the know. legacy is that the military in Brazil has this image of a clean, uh, non-corrupt institution, which is very closely associated with the Bolsonaro. Yes, um, and of course the other thing is if you're like out of power, then of course your level of theft from public resources is likely to be smaller. If yeah, you if you take, like, mm. when the army takes over a country and then is able to steal all mm. the money, then it's liable to increase the extent yeah. to which it does mm. that. And that's but, I mean, I think the focus on the media is very important, but it's not just uh, important uh, when we think, of course, of the role of a free media and investigating what politicians are up to, but also when we think in terms of how, uh, in general, media organisations have tabloidized their, their coverage, so they are, you know, all of them, and not just the press, because it, it's now almost impossible to distinguish anymore between press and kind of online journalism, uh, but also television channels have become much, much more similar to tabloids in the way they uh, focus on politicians' private lives, uh, try to use scandals to sell copies or attract clicks, whatever it is that they need to do, personalize issues so that the war in Iraq becomes a clash between Bush and Saddam Hussein instead of being uh, something that can only be understood when you look back at you know, the interest of states, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think this is also important. It's not just the kind of the press doing its job. It's also the press having to cover a political life in ways that are fundamentally different from 50 years ago. And, and this is kind of 
makes the issue of corruption uh, kind of it's presented in completely new ways. And also it kind of pushes people to, to, to be less tolerant of things that, you know, 50 years ago would have been okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in addition to the press, social media has been and extremely media, important, yes, both as a way of amplifying actual legitimate press coverage mm. that's negative about politicians, but also as a way of disseminating the, um, you know, the word fake news has obviously become a yeah. polluted way of describing this, but uh, essentially conspiracy theories and yeah. or... Um, mm-hmm hatchet jobs based upon lies have begun to be disseminated through through social media on an industrial scale yes. in a way that's been yeah. shown to us to, to, to influence to, outcomes. Yeah, to, to make an example, so, um, because we, we've always talked about right-wing or, or extreme right uh, movements, but of course uh, populism uh, also works on the left in South America, that's particularly true, but if you look at um, a party that uh, can also be defined as populist, among other things, which is a five-star in, in, in Italy. The extent to which the new technologies have allowed them to inflate issues and, and, and focus on issues that have to do with politicians' private lives and the way political parties work before accessing power is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, yeah. it's a very good point because uh, in Brazil, and something that I didn't mention, that the impact of social media in, the, in Bolsonaro's election... Uh, for the first time ever, a president was elected without using the publicly uh, allocated TV and radio time they usually have to, to campaign. Uh, it was completely irrelevant this time. So I think there's a number that uh, five out of ten Brazilians, they got the information or the, you know, uh, about the candidates or about most things in Brazil through WhatsApp. Mm. Oh. Yeah, and, and, and that, that got that there was allegations as well that campaign law was being circumvented by overseas use of WhatsApp, right? That that, that the messages yeah, were, the Brazilian were, were Brazilian were companies who apparently overseas. it's uh, now an ongoing investigation there, but the allegation is that was uncovered by one of the mainstream uh, newspapers in Brazil, Folha de São Paulo, that uh, some uh, uh, companies that were uh, sympathetic or supportive of Bolsonaro they donated illegally twelve million dollars. Uh, for another company to just bombard uh, uh, people with fake news on his opponent. So, but fake news that are the most disgraceful lies that you can imagine that got into pay p- people's f- mobile phones on a daily basis. Mm. And they say that uh, the opposition said they lost because of that, they, that the voters were swayed by the mm. fake news that was spread by it. I, w- I want to ask one last question because we've got to wrap up, and I'm going to come to you on, the, on, on this, Rich. One of the things that's been striking, that was striking in Brazil and perhaps in other places too, is that we had a very extreme right-of-center candidate um, in the form of Bolsonaro. But when it came down to a binary between him and the Workers' Party candidate, a lot of people who would certainly like to think of themselves as responsible center-right actors, traditional political parties in Brazil, um, indeed there was even an egregious editorial on the part of the Wall Street Journal, the, the, the United States newspaper, um, basically saying that, well, if this is the choice, this Bolsonaro guy may have some rough edges, uh, you know, he, he, he may have said some provocative things, but basically uh, liberals are being oversensitive about, about how, how bad he is, and when this is the choice, we really need to like, look on the bright side and make our peace with it. Now, throughout the ages, the ability of the center-right to make a kind of unwise um, peace with the hard right uh, has been the harbinger of bad times. So what is it, uh, what is it that allows people of the moderate right to 
convince themselves that, that, that fascism's not fascism or that Francoism's not Francoism at these crucial junctures, do you think? My sort of thought on that would be that moderate conservatives sometimes make that move to the right because what unites conservatism as an ideology is fairly loose. So when we think of liberalism or socialism, we can usually enumerate very clear values. Conservatism is wrapped up in a sort of vaguer set of positive ways of thinking about change, tradition, knowledge, and so on. So I think it's it's not as demanding to exit conservatism into another ideology uh, than it is for adherents of other ideological traditions. But I think that sort of loose boundary between conservatism and the hard right is only one part of what's going on here because the other aspect to this, I mean, why, if you like, the mob might fall for this kind of rhetoric is as a kind of delight in castigating liberals. So, hmm. I mean, Or, or uh, to put it in modern parlance, triggering the libs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the comments you began from, that you know, the outlandish statements in the, in the press and so on, they seem to me to be a sort of riposte to liberal virtue signalling, which is signalled in vice signalling and in a sort of enjoyment in mm. annoying liberals. So it's taking the attitude that, like, I don't even necessarily believe thing, these, these things, or do I, wink, but the more important thing is that they annoy you. So likewise, it's not so much that I like Jair Bolsonaro because he hates gays and women and black people. Mm-hmm. It's that it's going to really annoy people who are very sensitive about how you speak about, uh, about those groups of people. And, and annoying them is almost more important than the content of anything in particular, you say. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's, a, well, there's a, a, a provocation in it. B, there's a sort of sense in which you appropriate victim status for yourself because there's a sort of condescension by liberals who are deemed to virtue signal. And then see, I think there's a genuine fun in this because you, you think you're transgressing sort of standard norms or the prevailing sort of social etiquette in society and the way we communicate. Yeah, well, I, th- I, I think on that note, I should probably draw this uh, smug four-way liberal provocative <laughs> seminar uh, uh, to, to a close because we've, we've set the world to rights. Uh, thank you very much for listening. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the podcast. Uh, you can come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Poll Worldview. See articles links, uh, post your own comments etc. Please recommend us, share us on social media, that's how a lot of people find us. I would consider it a personal favour to me if you would share uh, an episode of this show and tell people they should subscribe. Our participants today have been Marco Vieira, where can people find you online if they're inclined to do it? Marco? I'm on Twitter uh, but I don't remember exactly what my Twitter <laughs> account name wow, is. Wow, the, 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 the media engagement department uh, is horrified. It's M, it's uh, actually, it's uh, M uh, underscore A underscore my surname, Vieira. Excellent. A late rally uh, there to get us the information that we need. Daniele, you are an active social media user. Uh, yes, I'm on uh, uh, Twitter, and uh, it's Dr. Albertazzi UK, so A-L-B-E-R-T-A-Z-Z-I UK. Is there a is there a Dr. Albertazzi in 
another jurisdiction? Mm, no, but when I tried to, to just use my name, it told me it, it told me not to use it. I don't remember why. That was some time ago. Um, I've never come across a, another Albertazzi uh, on Twitter, but I'm sure there must be some because it's a common name in Italy, so it's not very rare. Okay, well, perhaps listeners can look into that and find out... Uh, uh, find out who is the other Dr. Albertazzi, <laughs> what country does he live in, and what is he an expert, if anything, in. Rich, you are allergic to social media, yeah. I believe. I feel, I feel we've achieved a great crossing of the Rubicon by getting you into this studio here today, but you yeah. are not, to my knowledge, on any form of social media, is that correct? We need more people I, like you in Brazil. <laughs> have a mere humble email account, which ah. is, oh. is r.c.shorten at bham.ac.uk. Excellent. Or alternatively, people can um, leave a dead drop uh, behind the back wall of Star <laughs> House with, with, yeah. with, with a letter or, or, or uh, um, obscure, yeah. send, send a note on a carrier pigeon's well, leg if they can train it to fly to the Muirhead Tower in Birmingham. In, in fountain in pen on laminated paper, ideally. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Uh, I am Adam Quinn, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook. You can see a picture of me in sunglasses in front of the American Capitol building if you're going by photograph. I do most of my business on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at Adam James Quinn uh, if you like, but that's for uh, trolls and Russian bots, so I'd prefer if you came to me on Facebook. Uh, producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Um, thanks to the Pulses Good Ideas Fund for their generous support of the podcast. We appreciate them. As always, uh, we'll be back soon we hope you will be too bye <laughs>